weekend. We know many of our friends are traveling. We pray safe travels for them, but we're so grateful we get to gather together today to worship the Lord, to sing His praises, to pray together, and to study God's Word together. If you've been around Gateway for a while, you know today's a big day for us. We come to the end of 1 Peter. We've been studying the book of 1 Peter for 51 weeks, and we wrap that up today, and you're going to hear in just a few minutes where we are headed next. But first, two announcements for you, or three announcements of things coming up so you're aware of opportunities. Not this week, it's a kind of a calmer week for us, so that being the holiday. But the following week on Wednesday, July 12th, we have our next men's fellowship, and we are going axe throwing again. So yes, we're going to go downtown to civil axe throwing, and we will throw axes together for an hour at civil axe, and we'll go eat dinner at a local downtown pizza place afterwards. So we do need you to sign up. Space is limited. This is open to 18, guys 18 years old and up. And so go to our website, gatewaybaptist.com, and you can join us for a, just a good opportunity to fellowship with other brothers in the church. Now, ladies, you have an opportunity that following Saturday, on Saturday, July 15th, and you're having a ladies' tea at the Gazebo Tea Room. Space is limited for that as well because it's at the Tea Room. Details and registration are on the website for you to have a chance to fellowship together, have a devotional together, and enjoy some time getting to know one another. And finally, a reminder to our youth families, your ongoing youth activities continue, including this Wednesday night with a game night here at Gateway. You can see all the details of the youth schedule for the summer, again, on the website at gatewaybaptist.com. Now, we want to invite Jeff Moody to come up. He's one of our elders here, and periodically throughout the year, we want you to have an update from the elder team so you know what's happening. Our elder team is not some mystical group that hides out in the background and just you're not sure what we're doing. We want you as a congregation to know what we're doing and why. And so we've asked Jeff to come give you an update of what's been happening in recent months with the elder team. Hey, good morning, y'all. Oh, I should use the microphone. I think that's why it's here. As elders, we think it's important for you to hear from us from time to time about what's going on in the life of the church. And first, we'd like to ask you for your prayers for us as we serve you in the role where God has placed us. I think I can speak for all, for, for all the elders that in addition, we want to hear from you. So if you are an elder here, uh, would you raise your hands? We know we're short a few folks. Well, we're short everyone except me and Grady right now. So, But I saw Rick earlier. He's around. Also, William Fox is around too. And you've got uh, Pastor CJ and Greg Teal as well. So uh, reach out to us. Um, come find us. Come talk to us. We want to hear from you. It's, it's something that we want to, as we represent you, as we, as we serve you, we want to hear from you regularly so that we can know how to best do that. And uh, as, as, as Grady mentioned, we're finishing First Peter this week, and then after that we're going to do a six-week study on prayer. And we feel like as elders it's something that we've been really thinking about and sensing that the Lord has been leading us as a church to do, to encourage you in your personal prayer life, in your prayer life with your families and in your small communities and also for a prayer as a corporate church body. So over the course of the next six weeks, we're really going to be talking in, talking about and digging into prayer during Sunday mornings. After that, we're going to do a, we're going to enter into a study on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so we're going to, what we're going to get to see there. Awesome. Man. Eric Boyd is on board. Um, <laughs> but we're going to get to see God's incredible story of, from the beginning of how he has woven his sovereign uh, plan, his control, his grace, his mercy, and even the gospel all from the outset. And it's a really great way that we're going to get to see the full picture of God's story by digging into those beginning phases. So that's what we're heading toward in terms of preaching. On Wednesday nights, uh, they will resume on August 16th, and they're going to look a little bit differently for the adults. Uh, kids and youth will stay the same. 
but Wednesday nights for the adults, we're actually going to combine and have a combined men's and women's Bible study on the attributes of God. And so we're really going to dig into these portions of or these ideas about God's character and as we see them out in Scripture. And, but that's only going to be part of the, well, at least teaching is only going to be part of that because the rest of the time we're going to have small groups that we can facilitate some discussion about the attributes of God. And where we really see this come to, come to life is how does this thing that we're talking about, something like the holiness of God, apply in my daily life? And the best way to really unpack that is to work through it with other people and that are in this community of faith, that we can dig in together and talk about it and, and share ideas with one another. It's a really beneficial thing. So that's what we're going to do on Wednesday nights. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I wanted to also mention that we've heard that there's a great desire here for people to develop and be a part of uh, authentic Christian community. We know that we live in a culture that's very individualistic and it's very me-centered. But what God has called us to is in live in Christian community where we share life to get together. We submit ourselves to one another to where we defer to one another and serve one another. And we're praying about how to best walk with you through that. And we know that it's been a desire we've heard from a lot of people of, we're, just, we're struggling to find that authentic connection here. And so we want to figure that out as elders, but we recognize that it's more than just coming up with a program. It's more than just, okay, well, here's our community study. We want to figure out and think through and how, how to lead and work with you on how do we grow this but also provide some frameworks that you can step into. So please, please pray for us as we walk through that. But at the same time, also, we want to encourage you to plug into community. We have several opportunities for you to do that on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights and in life groups that meet throughout the week, but also to just have conversations with the people around you, especially if you notice somebody that's new or if you are new and you're feeling like, oh, this is, this is, I'm not really sure what to do here. I promise you, we're a very loving and safe people. Come and talk to us. We want to get to know you better. So um, be on the lookout this week for some more information. We're going to send out an email that includes some more specific details about everything I've talked, talked about this morning. Thank you. Well, thanks, Jeff. We appreciate that update. And as Jeff said, we do covet your prayers as we look towards the Lord's direction for all those things that Jeff had mentioned. As we prepare our hearts to sing to the Lord, can I ask you to stand, please? I want to read a scripture for us. It's our call to worship this morning. This is actually what we closed with last Sunday, and I figure it's a good place for us to start back. Because we're going to be singing this morning about the faithfulness of God, how He's a faithful, and we're going to be singing about Christ being the solid rock. As we think about God's faithfulness and just His sovereignty over all things, I just wanted to remind us of what we ended last week. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's celebrate the faithfulness of God this morning.
Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, 
and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And God, thank you. Thank you for this picture of the kingdom to come, because in this moment, as we're singing about you holding us fast, we recognize that this is not our home, that we live in a world of pain and strife, and sometimes that can feel so overwhelming. And it is such a good reminder to cast our eyes upward, to look for the future, for the kingdom that you are creating, that you died and rose again to build, to invite us into. So Lord, give us hope and give us faith to continue to depend upon you, God, even as we walk through these days. And that's why we come and pray, God, because we ask and we recognize that we cannot live this life on our own. We need you. And specifically, we want to pray for the marriages in our community here at Gateway. God, we know that marriage is such a beautiful thing. It is a picture of your love for the church. And because it is such a beautiful picture and represents such a high and holy thing, it is constantly under attack. So, Lord, we pray for our marriages that we, as husbands and wives, would serve one another well. And that, God, we would see that as we love our husbands and wives, as we connect in these ways that it is what you have called us to do and reflects your love for us. God, we want to pray for Fisher's Farm. We are so grateful to be partnered with this ministry and for the work that they are doing as, as a picture of your restoration as you are changing lives and restoring them. And we pray for all of the people that are there, for Jeff and Jen and for all of the other people that work in that, in that community, for Timmy and for so many others, but also for the guys that are there, that you would bless that ministry that you would meet their needs and that you would continue to do that work of restoration in their hearts. And Lord, thank you. We want to pray for Heritage Baptist down the road from us, God. We are grateful for that church and we're grateful for their pastor team and night. And we pray that you would be with them this morning, that you would engage hearts and that the word would go out and be received by the people there and that they would worship you. We also want to pray uh, for Taylor and Sarah Fox in Strasbourg, France. God, I pray that you would open up doors for them to continue to connect with the community that lives around them and to continue to bless their student ministry as they seek to hold out the truth of the gospel in a place that knows church as tradition but doesn't know the life-giving gospel. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity, God, to be a part of your kingdom and to contribute to it. And God, the resources that you give us are yours. 
And so as stewards, we hand them back to you when you say give. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless the giving that's happening here today and also that has taken place online this week. We just ask that you would continue to make us cheerful givers as we partner in the kingdom. And finally, God, we're very grateful for Grady. And we know that it is a tremendous wait every week to come and to seek to rightly divide your word. And so, Lord, thank you for the work you've already done this week in leading him and preparing him to speak this morning. And I pray that you would speak through him and that you would give us open ears and open hearts and attentive minds. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. And first to fourth graders, we'd like to go to kids worship. You're dismissed now. So first to fourth graders, you're with Miss Jennifer and Mr. Tom today. You guys have fun today. So while the kids are moving, I want you to find 1 Peter chapter 5 in your copy of God's Word or on your Bible app. 1 Peter chapter 5. Friends, I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we come to the end of this letter today. For the past 51 weeks, we have walked very, very, very slowly through this letter verse by verse. So note, for me at least, I feel like Peter has become a friend. A friend who reminds us of God's grace, yet then challenges us to pursue personal holiness, a friend who reminds us of who we are in Christ and our identity, and then who challenges us to live accordingly, a friend who reminds us of the reality of suffering and hardships that we face in life, and then challenges us, though, to trust God through those hardships. As we come today to the end of this letter, we come today to chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. And friends, what we have before today is not just a mere formality of the closing of the letter. As Peter's done all throughout his letter, he's going to close with both reminders and with challenges, with truth and with commands. He's going to remind us of the key message of the whole letter. And he's going to challenge us as he closes with two final commands for us today. So as we read these last three verses of 1 Peter chapter 5, I want you to be looking for as we read, what is the key truth of this letter that we're supposed to remember? What's the big takeaway from all of 1 Peter? But what are the two final commands that he gives us, the two things we do in response to the truth that he sets before us? So be looking for that as we read. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, and I'll be reading out the English Standard Version, starting in verse 12. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your unchanging word. We thank you for the truths that we've been reminded of throughout this letter. We thank you for the challenges that have been put before us throughout this letter. As we wrap it up today, Lord, we ask for much, much grace to understand these final few verses. These truths, these summaries, these challenges that Peter has for us would be very real to each one of us. That, God, you would do what only you can do, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the truth of your word, that your Holy Spirit would convict us where we need conviction, encourage us where we need encouragement, that we would leave this place transformed because you have met with us and changed us as your word is taught. And so, Lord, we ask you to do what only you can do for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's start with the truth that he puts before us. Let's start with the summary of the letter. And if you've been around Gateway for a while, you know that in each sermon I give you a main idea. 
like a key truth I want us to know from this text of Scripture. Sometimes I do it at the beginning, and today I'm going to do it at the end like I do sometimes. And that's basically what Peter does right here. He's going to give you the main idea of the letter, and he's going to do so at the very end of the letter here. So what is the main idea of all of 1 Peter? He tells us here in verse 12. He says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring. Now, we'll come back to all that, but here's the main idea of the letter, that this is the true grace of God. If you want one phrase that summarizes the entire book of 1 Peter, is this. This is the true grace of God. This word, this here, points back not just to the phrase before. It points back to the entire letter. This includes all the teaching we have seen on our forgiveness that we have in Christ. Everything we've seen about our new identity in Christ as the chosen people of God. Everything we've seen about our identity as exiles who are far from home. Everything we've seen about the promise of God to redeem the sufferings of this life to grow us. Everything we've seen about the ultimate hope we have in eternity with God. All of that that we've seen, he's saying this all is the true grace of God. And the reality that we've seen over and over is we do not deserve any of that. We do not deserve forgiveness. We do not deserve to have our sufferings redeemed for good. We do not deserve to have a new identity. We do not deserve to have eternity with God. This is all grace of God. Grace being God's unmerited favor to us. And as we have seen over and over throughout this study, friends, God is not stingy with his grace to his people. He gives abundant grace to his people, as we see in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 16. And from his fullness... We have all received, and you know this phrase well, it's one of my favorites in all of scripture, grace upon grace. This picture of waves of grace, of endless grace coming to God's people. And as we saw as well in Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 5, back in verse 10, we're told, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you. He is a God of all grace, of abundant grace. So friends, if you are in Christ, you have already received grace You're receiving grace today, right now, and you will continue to receive grace as God's people. So how do we as God's people respond to his grace upon grace upon grace? And that's what Peter shows us here in the closing. He reminds us of the truth of God's grace, and he gives us two responses to God's grace. Number one, he tells us to stand firm in it. He tells us to stand firm in God's grace. Look back at verse 12 and notice this final phrase here. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, what in the world does it mean to stand firm in something? Well, Peter kind of helps us know what he means in the words he uses right before this. Notice what he says in the previous phrase. He says, I've written briefly to you, notice these two words, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Exhorting and declaring. This is how he explains to us what he means by standing firm here. This word declare to you, the word declare means to communicate truth or facts. Peter throughout this letter has communicated truths, doctrines to us of who God is and who we are and what God's will is for our life. And so to stand firm in grace means we stand firm in our beliefs. We seek God's grace to grow in right thinking, to understand who God is and who we are and what his will is. He's declared to us truth, and so we stand firm by believing those truths. And that's what Peter's told us this whole letter, isn't it? Think back to chapter 1, verse 13, way back at the beginning of the letter. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, be thinking a certain way. We're told to be sober-minded, to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. So it begins the letter telling us to believe a certain way. And he wraps up the letter telling us the same thing. Back in chapter 5, a few verses earlier in verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. So he begins and ends the letter telling us to stand firm in what we believe, to stand fast in unchanging truths that have been given to us in the Word of God. But he also tells us what it means to stand firm, not just in this word declaring. Go back to verse 12. He says, exhorting and declaring that this is a true grace of God. To exhort is to instruct someone in how to live. It's teaching someone what their lives are to be like. That's why this letter has had so many imperatives, so many commands all throughout it about how we live in a hostile world. So standing firm is not just about us thinking correctly, it's also living accordingly. Standing firm means that we're living out what we profess to believe. We're seeking God's grace to grow in holiness and practical holiness in Christ's likeness. That's what he told us at the beginning of the letter, right? Chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What are we to do instead? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Why? Since it is written, he who, you shall be holy for I am holy. So standing firm then includes how we live. So when Peter tells us, go back to verse 12, he's exhorting, he's declaring, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He's calling us, friends, to be a people unwavering in the grace of God, unwavering in our belief in God's saving grace in our lives, unwavering in knowing Him and knowing who He is and His character, and unwavering as well in experiencing His transforming grace, His grace that changes us. We're to stand firm in His grace. Now, throughout this study, I've quoted Paul Tripp a lot. I've really benefited from what he's written on 1 Peter. So I want to give you one more thing Paul Tripp said about what it means to stand firm. This helped me this week. Paul Tripp says, stand firm means don't let anything move you. Don't give way to fear. Don't give way to pride. Don't give way to discouragement. Don't abandon the gospel in a moment of hardship. Hold on to the purity of the message of the gospel of grace. Let this message define how you think about your identity, how you think about your meaning, how you think about your purpose, how you think about your values, how you think about what's morally right and morally wrong, whose glory you're going to live for, whose honor is important to you, whose rule you want to surrender your heart for. So Peter is ending the letter by telling us this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Believe it and let it change you. Stand firm in his saving grace. Stand firm in experiencing his transforming grace. But notice what Peter shows us. What happens is by God's grace, we stand firm in grace. Look at the result in our life. Look at verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, we're coming back to that. Don't worry. So hold that thought on that phrase. Let's focus on the next phrase right now. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. When we stand firm in grace, friends, he says you can experience peace. Now, remember who Peter is writing to. He's writing to people experiencing fiery trials. Remember 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12? We're told, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So he's writing to people in a fiery trial, and yet he says, Peace to you. He's also writing to people who are experiencing attacks from the enemy, the roar of Satan. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. We saw this a few weeks ago. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he's saying to people who are being roared at by Satan, peace to you. Go now back to verse 14. Peace to all of you. Peace to all of you who are in the fiery trial. Peace to all of you who are experiencing the roar of Satan. He's saying peace is possible for you. One of the authors I read this week said it so well. He said, the roar of the lion and the flames of persecution cannot overthrow the shalom of Christ's salvation. 
the roar of the lion and the flames of persecution cannot overthrow the shalom, the peace of Christ's salvation. God gives grace. God gives abundant grace. God gives grace upon grace upon grace. And it results in peace in our hearts, even if we're experiencing the roar of the lion, even if we're experiencing the flames of persecution, peace is possible. And that's exactly how Peter began the letter back in chapter 1, verse 2. We're told, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood. Now notice this. He begins with this prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And now he ends the letter as well, telling us to stand firm in that grace and reminding us that that peace will come from the Lord as well. God gives us grace. God gives us peace. So how do we respond? We stand firm in it. We remember it. We believe it. And we let it transform us. But there's a second response he gives here, and this one's a little bit surprising, it may be, for us at first. But his second command here is to pursue Christian community. It's to pursue Christian community. And maybe thinking, I didn't see that command here, and it's here. It's just in a strange expression to us. Go back to verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Okay, what in the world is he talking about here to greet one another with a kiss? Now, first of all, friends, this is not the only place in Scripture this is commanded to God's people here. Paul commands it as well. Romans chapter 16, verse 16. You'll see something very similar. Greet one another because of a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20 as well there. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And you see it practiced in Scripture in Acts chapter 20, verses 36 and 37. This is when Paul was with the Ephesian elders and Paul's leaving. They know they will not see him again. And they're weeping and praying for him. And when he, Paul, had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, verse 37. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they, the Ephesian elders, embraced Paul and they kissed him. So now Peter, go back to verse 14, ends his letter. The final command is, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, to understand what this is saying, we have to realize that the culture at the time, this holy kiss, this kiss of love, was never on the lips, it was on the cheeks, but it was also never done between just loose acquaintances. This was a greeting that was reserved for family members and very close, intimate friends in your life. When there was a kiss on the cheek in the culture, this was a sign of kinship. This was a sign of deep affection and deep friendship. And though that cultural expression of greeting with a kiss is foreign to our culture, the truth of this command still applies. This is a command to pursue deep family-like relationships in the church. This is a command for us to be pursuing such a deep friendship with believers in the church that we feel like they're family to us and we would greet them the way you would greet your family members. It's a command to love one another and to not be hesitant in expressing your love for others in the church. So though we do not do the cultural practice of kissing one another on the cheek, we are to pursue the heart of this command, which is to greet one another, to pursue deep kinship-like affection for one another in the church. And isn't that what Peter's told us the entire letter? Every single chapter of this letter has a command about loving one another. Chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 22, Peter begins the letter, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. There's that kinship again. Love one another. Do so earnestly. Do so with a pure heart. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 17 as well, the same idea. Honor everyone. Notice this. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. He commands it in chapter 3 as well. In chapter 3, verse 8. 
Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy. Here it is again. Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He tells us the same thing in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Above all, this is an ultimate command for the church. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Then in verse 9, show hospitality. Express that love to one another without grumbling. And now we come to the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 14. It says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Pursue kinship-like relationships within the body of Christ and express that love for one another. Friends, God's will is for each of us to be in deep community. And friends, that takes more than just coming on Sunday mornings. This is a call to pursue relationships, to deep friendships in the body, to be like family where we love and serve and know one another. Now, friends, I want to give an important clarification on this command. We're in a culture of consumerism, and it affects everything we do. If we want to have food prepared for us, we go to Chick-fil-A or whatever restaurant you like. Um, if you want entertainment delivered to us, right, you go to the movie or you turn on whatever subscription you have. If you want to have something shipped to you, you go get on Amazon. And if we're not careful, we will go to church expecting community to be handed to us. This is what Jeff was alluding to and mentioning earlier in the Elder Update. There is a longing in our hearts for greater community here, but we must be careful not to come to church waiting for community to be handed to us. Too often in our culture, in the Christian culture, we have relegated community to what programs the church delivers for me, to waiting to see who pursues me, friends. This is not a command for me to wait for the church to start a new program. This is not a command for me, for us to wait for someone to hand me community. This is not a command for me to wait for others to pursue me. This is a command for me and for you to pursue friendships ourselves in the church, to take the initiative ourselves to get to know people and develop kinship-like friendships in the church. This is an active command, not a passive command. This is not a command done for us. This is a command that we are to do. We are to pursue greeting others. We are to pursue friendships. We are to pursue community in the church. So as Peter closes, what does he leave us with? The truth of God's grace, the call to stand firm in it, and the call to pursue Christian community in the church. Now, friends, those two commands are not unrelated. It's not like Peter's at the end here. He's like, oh, yeah, there's two things I forgot. Okay, stand firm in grace, and oh, yeah, also while you're at it, go pursue community. Friends, these two commands are intertwined so closely. This is, there's a reason Peter puts them together. Because, friends, the reality is we stand firm better when we're standing together. We're going to stand firm in grace better when we're standing together. Go back to verse 12, to this command he puts at the end of verse 12. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, our English gives us four words here. Stand firm in it. In the Greek, there's not four words here. When Peter wrote this Greek, there's just one word that gets translated this whole phrase. In the Greek, it's the word histomai. In the Greek, this is plural. This is not you yourself stand firm in grace. This is you all stand firm in grace together. So if you wanted to translate in good southern Alabama accent, this would be y'all stand firm together now, you hear? Like this is a plural, y'all, the church together, stand firm together, linking arms. This is something you can't do alone. This is something you do together. We are to be helping each other stay strong in our beliefs. We're to be helping each other stay strong in our pursuit of holiness. God calls us to do this together. This is not me and Jesus trying to stand firm. This is us together standing firm in our beliefs. This is us together pursuing practical holiness and Christ-likeness in our life, friends. And notice the beauty of this reality. God commands us to stand firm in grace. But then God gives us grace so that we can stand firm in grace. And how does God give us the grace to stand firm in grace? He gives us His Word so we know His will 
He gives us an invitation to talk to Him in prayer so we can seek His help. He gives us His Holy Spirit within us to guide us and direct us and convict us. And He gives us His church, the Christian community, to help us. Friends, don't miss this. Community in the church is a grace gift from God to help us stand firm in grace. The Christian community, friendships in the church, is a grace gift from God to help us stand firm in God's grace. So of all the things Peter could close with, he reminds us of grace, and he calls us to stand firm in that grace and to do so together through deep friendships in the local church. What's so fascinating about the closing of this letter here, it doesn't just tell us to do it. Peter models it for us here. Again, don't miss the details of his greetings here because in the way Peter says farewell here, he's modeling for us Christian community. He's modeling for us dependency on other believers. He's modeling for us being in a local church. He's modeling for us working alongside friends as co-laborers in the gospel. You see that in the three people or the three groups he mentions here at the end. So let's look at them and see how Peter's own life models the very thing he's just commanded us. First person he's in community with. Notice verse 12. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring this is the true grace of God. So he first mentions a friendship he has with a guy named Sylvanus. Now, friends, we mentioned this when we started the letter. But when Peter wrote this, there was no UPS to get his letter to the next city, next day delivery guaranteed. There was no USPS that might lose his letter and maybe eventually get it to the next city, right? There was no delivery service at the time here. Letters were carried by people and by trusted people to someone else. And so Peter wrote this letter and he gave it to a friend named Sylvanus to carry it to the people who were the original audience. And who was the original audience? Back in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so he sent Sylvanus to these towns to take the letter to them. But friends, what's so important here is when a letter carrier like Sylvanus took it to the towns, the Sylvanus didn't drop it off at the church, jump in his brown wagon, and run off real quick, right? He didn't leave it on their doorstep. The letter carriers were tasked with staying with the people. Sylvanus would bring the letter give it to the people, they would read it in the gathered church together, and then he would explain it to them. He was the first interpreter of the letter. He would teach them what it said. If they had questions, he could answer questions. Oh, yeah, what Peter meant here by this really weird expression was, and he could answer their questions there. That's why they commend the carrier of the letter. Verse 12, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. This is not just a random insertion. He's telling the original readers, okay, this guy who's showing up at your doorstep you don't know, He's faithful. He loves the Lord. He loves the Word of God. He's going to teach you what I mean by that. But notice something here. How would Peter know that Sylvanus is faithful? How do you know if someone's faithful to the Lord? You only know by spending time with them, by being in relationship with them. Sylvanus was not the UPS driver for Peter. He was a trusted friend that Peter had spent time with and knew the life, the beliefs, the walk that you saw, he saw in Sylvanus' life. This is also important because it shows us Peter's not doing everything himself. Peter's not trying to lead from a place of isolation. Peter's leading with community, with brothers around him, working alongside him. And friends, if Peter needed trusted friends and co-laborers, you and I do as well. God didn't make us to walk alone. So you see Peter in community with Sylvanus. There's a second community that Peter's sharing life with, and it comes through a kind of a strange expression here again. Look at verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you 
greetings. Now, this is not new to us in Peter's writings. Peter likes to throw in some weird expressions for us at times, doesn't he? We've come across several along the way in our journey this last 51 weeks. Here's another one for us. Who in the world is she who is at Babylon? Now, give you a lot of backstory to this, but quite simply, this is an image for the local church in Rome. She who is at Babylon, who's also chosen, is just a picture of the local church in Rome. When Peter wrote this, Babylon was in ruins. It wasn't a town that would have even been habited at this point by people who had started a church. But this was a term that was common at the time for being far from home. People would talk about being in Babylon as a place where they knew they were strangers. They knew they were exiles. They knew they were in a different place there. And so it's a description of being far from home. And it often got applied to Rome at the time. Rome, the center of the Roman Empire, the place where there was so much false worship, a place that would oppose Christians, which was so antithetical to the gospel in so many ways. So Babylon and Rome came to be associated. And so when he says here in verse 13, she who is at Babylon, he's talking about the church that is in Rome, who is likewise chosen by God, who are believers who belong to God. Now what does this teach us? This teaches us that Peter, the great apostle himself, was immersed in a local church in the town in which he lived. That means that there were people who were there who knew what he was burdened about. There were people in that church who were praying for the things Peter was praying about. And there were people who, in the church who knew who Peter was writing to. He didn't show up one day and he's like, hey, by the way, I wrote to the people in all these cities. They knew he was writing to them because they sent their greetings to these other churches. P- Peter was in community in a church there. As he shepherded people, he was being shepherded. He needed community. And he was not above pursuing what he told others to pursue. And friends, if Peter needed community, you and I do as well. So we see Peter in community standing firm in grace with Sylvanus with the church in Rome. And there's one more here also in verse 13. It's that last phrase. And so does Mark, my son. Mark, the one who penned the gospel that bears his name. Mark, the one who you find in Acts where his mom is opening the home for people to pray while Peter is in prison. This is the Mark who has served alongside Peter and continues to do so here. And we see in the closing, she sends greetings as does Mark, my son. Now, my son simply means that Peter had a strong affection for Mark. He saw him as a spiritual son in the faith, and he invested in him, and he pursued discipleship with him. This is the same language that Paul uses to describe Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Oops, sorry, let me go back to 1. So, yeah, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, both Paul and Peter model for us pursuing friendships with other believers. Both Paul and Peter model for us pursuing helping other people grow in God's grace. Because that's not something just for the disciples. That's God's will for every single one of us who knows Christ. That means I need people investing in me, and I need to be investing in people. And that means you need people investing in you on a personal level, and you need to be investing in others. So let's try to bring all of that back together now. One final truth of the letter This is the true grace of God. How do we respond to it? We stand firm in it, and we stand firm best in it by living together in community. And Peter doesn't just tell us to do it. He models it for us as he pursues community with Sylvanus, with the church in Rome, and with John Mark. So in light of all that, I want to give you our main idea from this text this morning to wrap up what we're seeing in these closing verses. Simply this, friends. To stand firm in God's grace through the trials of life, we need one another. To stand firm in God's grace through the trials of life, we need one another. Friends, we've seen it all throughout this letter. Life is hard. Life is full of suffering. We've seen over and over that we're not to be surprised at the fiery trials. We're to be prepared for the roaring lion's attacks. We're to expect hardships and suffering. You've heard me say many times throughout this letter, God's will for me and for you is not to get me from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable, wealthiest way, 
possible. Life is going to be hard, but God gives grace. And not just a little grace, an abundant grace, a grace upon grace upon grace, and calls us to stand firm in that grace, to stand firm in His saving grace, believing the truths we have heard, to stand firm in His transforming grace, letting His grace change us to be more like Christ. But to stand firm in grace like that, when a world mocks us and opposes us, when we have an enemy who attacks us and tempts us and wars at us, and when our own flesh wants what is out there, we need the grace gift of community. We need one another to stand firm in grace because we stand firm in grace better when we stand together. So to stand firm in God's grace through the trials of life, we need one another. By that, I want to ask you two questions this morning. Number one, who are you in close community with? Who are you in close community with? Who knows your struggles today? Who knows where you've had a hard time this week standing firm in grace? Friends, who is asking you the hard questions in love to challenge you? Who knows where you're discouraged and is speaking Scripture into your life to encourage you? Not from a distance, but on a deep, personal level. Friends, none of us are above that. Every single one of us needs people in that type of community with us. And the reality is if you do not have that type of community of people who are challenging you and encouraging you and speaking into your life where you're struggling to stand firm in grace, it will be very, very hard to keep standing firm. But I want to flip that question to a second question because... Again, this is not a consumer thing to where we're waiting for the church to hand this to us. This is a command for you. So my second question is, who are you pursuing close community with? Who are you pursuing community with? Who are you actively helping stand firm in grace? Who are you lovingly helping? Who are you encouraging who is discouraged? Who are you challenging who needs to be challenged? But friends, who are you inviting into your life to say, come help me. I'm struggling with this. Please help me. Friends, to stand firm in God's grace through the trials of life, we need one another. So, friends, are you pursuing community in the church? Community that helps you stand firm and community where you help others stand firm. Friends, with that, that brings us to the end of this letter. In the light of the closing of the letter, which is a call to remember God's grace and a call to remember God's community, it's fitting that we, send, we, we, we finish together by celebrating communion a communal event of celebrating God's grace corporately together, two very things that Peter's ended with we get to do collectively together. Friends, when we celebrate communion, we're collectively declaring our belief in God's grace. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, you've seen that. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're reminded of His saving grace again in chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So when we celebrate communion, we're collectively affirming our belief in who God is, in his saving grace for us. But when we celebrate communion, we often take time to reflect before we receive the elements, because communion is also a collective longing for transforming grace. We remember what Christ has done for us. We realize we've not arrived yet, and we have more that God needs to sanctify and grow in us. So communion reminds us of our need for transforming grace. We've seen that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2. We're to live for the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We saw it a few verses later in verse 7 of chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So when we gather collectively for communion, we're declaring our belief in God's saving grace. We're declaring collectively our longing for God's transforming grace. But communion also has a forward aspect. It points us to the return of Christ when we experience more grace to come and we are transformed in the days to come. First Peter chapter 1 reminds us of what's still to come in verses 4 and 5. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. Right? This is not fully here yet. It's ready to be revealed in the last time. And friends, all of that is grace. God's unmerited favor this whole letter has been about. When God justifies us, when he saves us from the penalty of sin, it's grace. We don't deserve it. When God transforms us and sanctifies us to free us from sin's power, we don't deserve it. It's a grace. And that future day is still to come when God glorifies us. We're saved from the presence of sin and we have glorified bodies and no more suffering and no more hardships. It's just perfection with God forever. That is all grace because we do not deserve it. And we come to communion, friends. We're celebrating that free grace given to us. But it's a sobering reminder for us because we realize this grace was not free. It was free to us. It cost Jesus his life to be the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sin. First Peter 1 told us this in verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, you were rescued, you were bought back from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but through what? With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. So friends, it's very fitting as we come to the close of 1 Peter, as we hear the exhortation to stand firm in this grace, this grace that was bought for us with the precious blood of Christ, and to stand firm together that we collectively as a body of believers celebrate communion together to thank God for His grace, to ask God for more of His grace, and to turn our mind not only to the cost of that grace, but to what still awaits us as His people. So, friends, this morning as we gather at the Lord's table, as we eat the bread, we remember that Christ's body was broken for us, that He took the wrath of a holy God that you and I should have experienced for all eternity in hell. He took it for a moment there on the cross. As we drink the juice, we are reminded that his blood was shed because Scripture tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. As such, friends, this is only for believers. It's only if you know you're in Christ, you know for sure that your sins have been forgiven, you know for sure that you belong to God, that you are a child of God, that he has purchased you with his precious blood. This is for you. It does not matter if you're a member of Gateway or not. What matters is that you know that you know Christ and you've been ransomed from the feudal ways of your past, that you've experienced his saving grace in his transforming grace. Friends, if you do not believe, if you're not sure that's you, we just want to ask you to remain seated where you are as we receive the elements this morning. No one's going to come seek you out. No one's going to embarrass you. We just want you to sit where you are and reflect on all these truths that we have seen and simply to pray, God, I'm not even sure if you're real. If you are, show yourself to me. And to just ask God to show himself to you. But friends, if you know Christ in a personal way, you are welcome. We want you to have time to reflect on his grace, to thank God for his grace, and to ask him for even more grace. Now, if you're new to Gateway, we do communion different than in some churches. We're going to actually have you come forward to receive it. We're not going to bring it to you. You're going to come forward. And the reason we do that is several fold. But one, friends, communion is a communal event for us to do together. And when we come forward together, it celebrates the church being together to receive this. But it's also, we said earlier, the church is not a consumer place. This is a place for you to come pursue community. It's a chance for you to come pursue God and respond to His grace. So we have you come forward to receive the elements. But we also want you to have time to reflect. We don't want you to be rushed on this. So as you're waiting to come forward, even once you receive the elements, there's no rush to take them in that moment. Use time to pray and to reflect, to think about God's grace that has saved you, to thank Him for that in prayer, to ask Him for transforming grace, to ask Him, Lord, where are the areas of my life I need more transforming grace? And to respond to Him in prayer and to celebrate what He's done for you and what He's still doing for you. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, our praise team is going to come receive the elements. And then our ushers will direct you. Please follow their directions. You'll make two, uh, two lines down the middle of the room here to receive the elements and then return to your seats that way so we can get everyone to, to move through. And that we have gluten-free elements on the front right up here for those who need that. But let's celebrate the Lord's grace together. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we do thank you just for so many reminders of grace. Lord, we realize this day we deserve nothing from you except for wrath. Lord, every single one of us are sinners who have offended your holiness, who have broken your law day by day by day by day. And Lord, we deserve nothing but eternity of punishment for all that we have done. Yet you've looked upon us in our helpless state. And you showed pity on us. You gave mercy and grace to us. You forgave us of all of our sins. And you gave us Jesus' righteousness. So when we stand before you, we don't come before you of our own initiative. We don't come before you with our own holiness. We come before you simply covered in Jesus' righteousness. And so we celebrate that today, and we say thank you today. The thank you seems such feeble words. We come to you this morning, receiving these elements, seeing the bread and the juice, to remember what Christ has done for us, the grace that he's given to us to make us children of God, to give us an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, and to be growing us and preparing us for that day. So Lord, I pray this morning for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters that we celebrate communion. God, you would turn our hearts to thankfulness. You would fill our hearts with awe and wonder at who you are and how you've looked upon us and given us grace and mercy. And may we worship you for all that you have done. God, we give you praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.
I'll stand as we get ready to sing. Have paid my ransom. 
but this but this I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my now before I pray for us I have a homework assignment for you today we just finished First Peter. We finished a year in First Peter. Wrap it all up. Can I ask you this week, read the whole letter from beginning to end in one sitting. There's so much truth and so much we've gleaned on this over the last 51 weeks. It's beautiful to see it all together. So if you just take 30 minutes this week, read the five chapters together in one sitting, and just saying, Lord, thank you for your grace and your word. Show me what you want me to do because we want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, We thank you for your grace. We've said it several times today, but Lord, there's really inadequate words to thank you that you've not treated us as our sins deserve, but you have given us grace upon grace upon grace. We thank you for the grace of your word. Lord, I'm thankful for all you've taught me and stretched me in these five short chapters of 1 Peter this year. And Lord, I pray you've done the same for these friends here at Gateway. Lord, I do pray that the truths we've heard would stick in our hearts and our lives, Lord that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only, that all these things we've studied and explored for the last year would not just be truths that we can just check off on a list, but truths that would sink deep into our hearts as we understand more and more of your glory and your sovereignty and your greatness and your beauty and your majesty and your power, and the more we understand our desperate need for your grace every single day. So let us be a people who are dependent upon your grace, who celebrate your grace, who live in your grace, who, as we were challenged from your word today, to stand firm and your grace. We ask you to do it all for your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.